This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. So today we are starting uh, a new series on the book of Esther, and it is quite a unique book. Ruth is similar, where there isn't much mention of God, but in the book of Esther, there is no mention of God. Not even once, not even of the religion. In chapter 3, there's a moment where it talks about people fasting, but that's it. And the question for many people has been, should the book of Esther be a part of Scripture in that canon? Uh, Martin Luther, uh, the leader of the Reformation, questioned its place in Scripture. I mean, that's how controversial it was. But what if... God's name and the mention of God was left out on purpose? What if it was not by accident? What if it was in God's wisdom to help us see that this is what much of life is like? Because when we do read scripture, what we remember uh, are those stories that we heard in uh, children's ministry or uh, the, the books that you read and what you remember is a splitting of the sea and, and the Israelites walking on dry ground. It's like, oh, I want that kind of life, right? Uh, that's the idea. Even with the children's sermon, we heard about manna that was given, you know, bread from nowhere, right? That's the kind of life that we want. But when you think about it, most of Scripture is filled with the very ordinary. And God is working in the ordinary. And that's what providence is. It's not simply that God does the miraculous. It's actually in the very ordinary aspects of life for you to be able to see that God is present. And so the whole idea of the series is seeing the unseen God. And my hope is, as you hear about this small town girl, right, who does not have a big name or family, actually uh, was orphaned. It's her that God uses, right? In a very patriarchal society, it's, it's her. It's, it's, God uses her to save his people. And what I want you to be able to see is uh, that he is the great director behind all of life. And like a director, you don't see the director in the movie, but the director has full control of what's going on on set in that movie. And to know that God is in full control. And as you do, as the, the, what, we're, what we're looking at today is the idea of power. The idea of King Azarius, who is also known as King Xerxes, uh, you will see in, in chapter 1, it's a setup to see that this man who rules this kingdom, a full dictatorship, uh, has all the power in the world, and to see how counterfeit that power truly is. And so the first thing that we see is of this counterfeit power, the ruse, the, the, the bluff, the, how, it's, how it's fake. It's all uh, in, our, in our physical eyes. It seems like this grandeur, this, this, this majesty of power, this glory But it's a ruse, it's a trick, it's fake, it's a bluff. In verse 1, Now in the days of Azurius, 
the Azarias who reign from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Arguably, no person has ruled like this before. Uh, this um, uh, this, this uh, area of Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopia to India, uh, I think Ethiopia is, would actually be modern-day Sudan now. The idea is this is about the size of the U.S., but even with the U.S., there are, well, it should be checks and balances. But that's, that's the idea of it. It's this, it's this man who ruled over this, this region. It was, he was this powerhouse. So he, he sets it up, helping us see the power of this man. In verse 2, in those days when King Xerius sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors and all the provinces were before him. Why? In verse 4, while he, was, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. That was the whole reason. It was to show uh, these leaders uh, how powerful and how strong he is. Right, to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for 180 days, six months, half a year. Right? Some of you uh, have had some long parties, maybe. Maybe you've gone on a nice vacation, and you think, oh, six weeks or six days, it's a, it's a long time to just, just to have fun. Six months. Right? The author is helping us understand how filthy, rich, and powerful he is. The idea is like he, he oozes this strength, this power. Verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, not just now a few, now it's, he's, he's invited all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, so not just the rich. Any, anybody can come. Oh, what a nice king, right? A feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. I mean, think, a week-long celebration. I mean, for us, when we throw a party, it's a dinner, right? And with that, we think about who to invite. And then there's always that one person. It's like, oh, should I invite this person? Should I not invite this person? I have this budget. And you think, start to think, if I invite this person, well, I've got, I've got to invite these other people then. And so it's, it's always this idea of, like, I only have so much. The best I can do is maybe a nice dinner and maybe 10 people, maybe 20 people, right? And the idea of this, he invites all the people right, from all the land, right? Both great and small to Feast, and then now look at the party. Uh, in verse six, uh, there were white cotton curtains and and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen, and purple uh, and purple uh, to to silver rods and marble pillars, and it, and it goes on. These couches, right? These couches are are made of gold, right? In verse seven, drinks were served in these golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine, not just the cheap wine, right? Not just 7-Eleven wine, right? It's the best wine. And it's hard for us to imagine this, 
right? Because all the stories that we do see of old are often of royalty, and you think, oh, that's kind of normal. And the idea of this author is helping us feel how disgustingly rich this leader is. Uh, I think the closest equivalent that I can think of today, uh, I'm not sure if everyone's seen it, uh, is on MTV, um, there was uh, this show called My Super Sweet 16, uh, where these filthy, filthy rich people uh, would have this grand, glorious party for their 16-year-old you know, son or daughter. And in these, uh, in these you know, parties, they're you know, very exclusive. Uh, only the best of the best are able to come, often inviting you know, celebrities, often inviting uh, you know, rappers and artists to come and perform. And then the, the gifts that they would get, these 16-year-olds, these are, are like Bentley. Right, like Jaguars, right? Three cars that you just one day dream, maybe I can just sit in it, right? Not even buy it. It's like the idea. Uh, Lamborghinis were given in these, and it just it was it was this this idea of like when you watch it, it's like who are these people, and why aren't any of them my friends, right? That's like the idea. Like who, where, like you know, it's it's so otherworldly. And that's what the author of Esther is helping us feel. Azurius is a man who is filthy, disgustingly rich and powerful. He had the land. He had the throne. He had the army. He had the riches. He had the lifestyle. He had the home, the palace. He had the goods. He had everything that any person could ever want to actually have any kind of power. And he's all doing this to set it all up. That's what the author is doing. He wants you to feel and to think, man, this man has so much power. He can do anything that he wants. Think about it. He could do and he is basically God. What he says people will do. It doesn't start with Mordecai, who will be a main character doesn't start with Esther. It doesn't talk about the Jewish people at all. It starts off completely from a different world. And, and that whole idea is as you read it, you feel like, oh, this is a little bit like our world. Where is God? And he sets it up to help us realize the power that we see these men and women hold in, in these positions of government these CEOs, these people that we think who have power, the whole idea of it is it's, it's a setup. It's, it's a bluff, right? It's a ruse. You think it's something all to be one day known that it is nothing. I'm not sure if you've uh, all seen uh, this movie, uh, Wizard of Oz. Uh, have you seen it, some of you? All right, so if you've seen it, uh, you grew up in my generation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you watch it now, you could tell it's very, you know, poorly made <laughs> in terms of what we are able to do today. But it tells a great story about a girl named Dorothy who is, you know, transported via hurricane, right, tornado to uh, this, this land of Oz. And the whole time, Dorothy just wants to go home. Right? And she just wants to go home. There's no place like home. And so uh, she's told, uh, if, you, if you see the wizard, the wizard of Oz, this land, 
uh, this wizard could potentially grant you this wish and be brought home. And so Dorothy sees uh, this wizard, and the wizard says, if you're able to uh, bring to me or, or melt, kill, uh, this, this wicked witch of the West, then I will grant you this wish. And so she goes on this journey, and, and on this journey she you know, finds uh, you know, the Tin Man and the Lion. and It's this journey of you know, finding yourself in one sense. Well, at the end of it, uh, she defeats and finds uh, the, the Wicked Witch, defeats uh, the witch, uh, gets the broom, brings it to this wizard, and as they, they, as they enter into this palace, they're trembling, right? They're, they're all like shaking, like very noticeably. They're, they're shaking. They're, they're so fearful. And they, and they say, oh, wizard, you know, we've brought you what you've wanted. We've brought you this broom, right, of this witch. And then she says, I want to go home. And then the, the wizard, uh, who is, you know, this, this you know, this mirage, uh, with all this, you know, white and, and green smoke coming out, this thunder in the background with this deep, majestic voice, and says, no, you know, you come back tomorrow. Maybe I'll grant you this wish. And then she says, no, please, I want to go home. And the wizard's like, no, I am this great and powerful wizard, and I will not grant you this wish. And, and then Dorothy is pleading, you see, you know, the lion and the, and the tin, tin man, like, all like, oh, come on, please, you know, help us. And then as they're doing this, uh, this little, uh, their little dog, you know, yay big, right, starts, like, kind of wandering off and finds this little green curtain, opens up the curtain, and they see this, this, this old, stout, gray-haired man. Uh, pressing all these buttons and gadgets, speaking into this mic and say, "I am the the you know this the powerful wizard of Oz," and and then you know Dorothy and the and the crew they see, they're thinking, "Who is this person?" So as they walk closer, he realizes he's found out, and so as he's saying this, he's literally saying into the mic, "I am the the great and powerful wizard of Oz," right? Fully exposed, showing that it's all a ruse, it's all a bluff. And that's one of the main points of the book of Esther. When you see all that's going on in the world, when you see all these leaders who seem to be so powerful, all these politicians, when you see this virus literally ransack a whole global economy, we're reminded that the power that we think we have, the power that we see in this world, how fragile it is. And that's the whole idea. As you live this life, as you see 2020, as you read the news, to still remember that it's all a ruse. The people who are put in position, all the power that we, you see, it's, it's, it's a fraud, it's fraudulent. Because you see not only... Uh, how counterfeit this is, right? Not only do you see that it is a ruse, but then you see that it truly has no real power, right? The impotence of this counterfeit, this counterfeit power, how it is how it's impotent, it has no power. Because as uh, the author is now set up how grand and, and powerful this king is, 
you'll see very clearly how he has no power. Verse, verse 10, seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he's drunk, he's happy, he's living the life, all his, his leaders are around him, he feels like the man, right? To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. So she wants, he wants to bring his beautiful wife for everyone to look at her and for him to feel like this is who I am. I am the man who has everything, all the riches, all the glory, and my wife is beautiful. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs at this, at this time. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The whole idea is to set him, set him up to see, to see that he seems so powerful. And then even in his own home, his wife does not obey, right? Husbands, you know how this feels like. Right? You may be uh, very prominent in your workplace. You may feel like you're very effective. And then you go home, whether it's your wife or your kids, you realize you've got no power apart from that title that you have at work. And that's the idea. It's showing us what real power is made of. And we continue on in verse 17. For the queen's behavior will be made known for all the women, causing them to, them to look at their husbands with contempt. So now they're scared. Will Queen Vashti now lead, uh, lead this one sense rebellion against all the husbands? And now what you start to see very quickly is this nation that seems indestructible, how in the very the micro aspects of life, in our own homes, there is really no power. It shows how impotent this, this actual counterfeit power is. Continues on. They're scared. So uh, the very day in verse 18, uh, the very day uh, the noble women of Persian media uh, who have heard of the queen's behavior will say to all the king's officials, there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. In verse 19, if it please the king, let, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written like scripture almost, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes so that it may not be repealed. So it's this, it's this final word. And what's this final word? That Vashti will never again, uh, well, is never again to come before King Xerius. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better. They're trying to make an example out of her. And now they're, they're, they're using force to show that they're, they're still strong, they're still powerful. And then look, at what, look, look what happens in verse 20. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is, uh, it is vast, all women, and this is the command that's going out to all the nation, right? All women will, get, will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. What they're trying to do is, by law, create order in the home. What you realize is how weak this power is. It's a power that's, that uses fear. It's a power that uses money. It's not a true power. There is no truly leading of the people. There is no real order within the people. You see how fragile it is that even within the own home, if just one woman, the queen, rebels, how this entire nation is a nation built just by cards. Right? So it's a house of cards. It's a, it's, a, it's a nation of cards. 
one little trickle, one little, one little impact onto the, the foundation of this nation, it all crumbles. And we're reminded of that, aren't we? How we don't have that kind of power, which is why we often use our voice, our strength, trying to sometimes instill fear into people, using threats, because we realize how much we lack, even with our own strength. Because as soon as your money, your position, all of it is taken away, the question is, what remains of you? Do you, as a person, do you have power? Do you, are you able to lead people? Are you able to have conversations in your homes? Is there order? Is it within you? Are you fully dependent on the external? Everything, all the power that's led on the external, your position, right, your money, that's all counterfeit. As soon as that's taken away, it's like monopoly money, right? In that game, you have all the money, but you take that money, you go to 7-Eleven, you try to buy gum with it, even with $100, what's that, what's that, she going to say? Uh, this money's not accepted. It's counterfeit. It's not real. And so it's, it's, this, it's in this mindset as we, especially as the people of God, feel like such a minority, feel like our values are so different, we feel like we have no power, then the question is, where do we find our power? Where do we have control at? In verse 20, we see the strength of authentic power. What real power is, we see the strength of it, how it's indestructible, how it is potent. In verse 20, with one simple statement, shows us how weak his word is. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Think about this. For them, it was this law that was given, and the people would therefore obey. But what you'll find out later is they try to make these amendments within the law right, of, of this nation. So they, try to, they have this, this law that it's, it do, doesn't change, but they realize they need to change it later on because this law is futile. It's weak. But then think about for us how it's in the book of Scripture, right, this Bible that we have. It's eternal. It does not change. There are no amendments, right? In the U.S. Constitution, there are amendments, right? Changes that needed to be made to the original Constitution. As many people say, it's one of the best uh, constitutions written for a nation. You realize it had to have all these amendments because it was not final. It was not eternal. It was not wise. It's fragile. And the idea of this is you see this man who is, has all this power and how fragile, how impotent his power is, and then you see a book like Esther, how it's so well written that even the whole theology helps us realize that God is intentionally not written of so that we would see that God is working while he, is, while he remains to be unseen. One author, one commentator says uh, this of uh, God's word written about, uh, about the book of Esther. As some people doubt its place in scripture, this is what she says. 
Without God's own interpretive commentary on the events of history given to the other biblical authors, the whole Bible would read like the book of Esther. And we would have no certainty about God's involvement in the events of Israel's history or that of any, uh, or that of any people. In other words, God's verbal, interpretive self-revelation is essential if we are to know him. Let me pause there. The whole idea is, is when we read Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is interpreting what actually happened. It's actually helping us see God's self-revelation. When God chooses to create, he used his own breath, his own word to give life, to, to bring about creation. Helping us see that God is involved. And what Esther is doing is intentionally leaving God out. Helping us realize that sometimes in your day-to-day life, you won't see God working. You'll question as you read the news, where is God in the midst of 2020? And that's the whole idea. So this is what she says. We can read the present story for theology only because it's placed in the biblical canon. We know that because God has placed it in Scripture, now we understand what's really going on. When all is said and done, lack of God's interpretive revelation in a book that is, that is itself the Word of God, God is its genius. But the lack of God's interpretive revelation, talking about what God is doing, not being explicit, is actually the genius of this book. And if you think about that, it is amazing, is it not? That the church has grown, that we have come to know God on a personal level by a book written within thousands of years, right? written 2,000 years ago. And to think this book, written in a certain time by myriads of authors, has the power to help you know who God is. The Word of God is living and active, fully able to engage your heart, divide the motives of your heart so that you would know who He is. If you read the Bible and you read a bunch of other religious books, you'll realize very quickly it's very, very, very different. If you read the Quran, you'll realize that much of the Quran are lists of situations and what you should or shouldn't do. The Bible is a little bit like that through Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the whole Bible in and of itself is what? It's a story. Why is it a story? Why isn't it simply these truths in this situation do this? Why? Because it's showing you who God is. Not simply by saying what he's done. It's bringing you into a relationship. Do you see? It's very different than... All other religions, all other religions will use fear, a fear of hell, a fear of judgment, and then these external rewards that you will get these virgins in heaven. And what the Bible does is very radically different. It's nothing external, right? The Bible is simply showing you God's love for you. And for you to know that deeply, which is why we want to read scripture, to to understand that dynamic. And so most other religions, it has this impotence, right? Trying to use all these other reasons, but the Bible is showing you who God is, his love, his holiness, his goodness. And in that, for you to see him, love him, and live for him. Because God is not after your obedience. God is after your heart. 
right? Most people have a love for power. God's people have a power of love. And God's people have a power of faith. And when you think about for you, when you feel like you don't have this power, it's written in a way where you realize that a small town girl like Esther, just simply by obedience, her faith, that didn't seem very radical at times, God uses her. And the challenge of the book of Esther will be, when you don't see God working in your life, will you be obedient? Will you have faith? Will you have love? Because it's by those small moments that God will bring about his kingdom. Uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, passed away recently. Many of you know who he is. Uh, Great thinker. Great apologist for the faith. Great author. Great speaker. And many would attribute his success in ministry because of his intellectual prowess, right? How, how agile and how powerful his thinking was, how he can engage with all these other worldviews and give you a clear answer of what's really going on. He did an amazing job of that, right? As he passed away, many people honored him. Many, many Christian leaders honored him. Many uh, secular leaders honored him. But it was in the memorial, if you watch, you recognize the reason he was so effective, the reason he was so powerful was not because simply of his intellect, his argument, because every person talked about his humility, how he recognized the marginal person, those who are oppressed. And so over and over and over, whether it was his sister-in-law, his brother, um, his daughter, uh, his friend, every person talked about not just how much, how brilliant he was as a thinker, but his heart. Uh, one, uh, one person, his name is Lou, in the beginning of the memorial, talks about how he was so excited to work uh, at RZIM. And uh, the, he remembers the first time he, he met Ravi. He, was, uh, he went to one of uh, Ravi's speaking engagements uh, to work and, 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 and to help. But he had never met Ravi. And he talks about how afterwards, Ravi, when he sees Lou, goes straight to Lou, looks him in the eye, you know, shakes his hand and says, I'm so, I'm so happy you're with our team. Lou, I'm so grateful for you. And Lou's like, how does he know my name, right? Because he's never met him. And that was the kind of man Ravi was. Uh, his sister-in-law talks about how uh, whether it was a driver or the, the bag carrier or the cleaning staff, the vendor on the side of the road treated them as if they were made in the image of God. And then Naomi Zacharias, his daughter, says this. My dad was at home with those often overlooked, taken for granted, or marginalized. And a friend wrote this. A friend wrote he, he could dine with kings and make a taxi driver feel like a king. If you were in front of him, he saw you. His brother talks about how in 1971, in the beginning of his ministry, he would drive an hour, three and a half hours to, to speak at a church, and then come home around 2 a.m., and then he would see Ravi kneeling at his bedside, praying for the very people he counseled there. 
When you hear these stories of the very people that knew him best, all of them would talk about not just how brilliant he was, but how much he loves, how much he cares. You see, you may not have the wealth, you may not have the position, you may not have the intellect. You may feel like, what can I do in this world? I've got no power. I've got no ability to influence people. And then you're reminded that people of God live radically different. We don't have, yeah, maybe the power of the riches and maybe of the intellect. But what you all have is the power of faith. To know that though God is unseen, he is working. What he calls you to is to obey. What he calls you to is is every day to love your neighbor, your co-worker, right, your roommate. And it's, it's these small instances of faith. When you don't see God working, to have faith, to know that God is working in you and God is working through you. It's made most clear in the person of God, right? When God comes down, right? In John, it talks about how he's a man of glory, but people did not see that. Because what they wanted was the riches, was like a King Xerxes, Right? That's what they wanted. And they missed his glory. They missed his beauty because they missed what true power is. And so it's a reminder for us, wherever you are in your own faith journey, to recognize that the, that the power that we see in this world, what we often identify as power, is fragile. It is impotent. But to know that you, God has given you a power a power to love, a power for faith. Let's pray. It's in the cross, is it not? The old rugged cross. No one knew. No one knew what was going on. They mocked him, saying, are you the king of kings? Little did we know, he was changing the world. He was changing all eternity by the simple act of love. To destroy sin and death once and for all, for all who believe in him, to have life and life to the full. And to know that that supernatural resurrection power is in you. It is in you. You may not feel like you have it. If you have Christ, you believe in him, he has given you the Holy Spirit. A spirit to be able to love. A spirit to have faith in the hardest of times. And I promise you, those two things alone will change the people in your life. When people can't see God, they will see God in you. And so let's take a moment, wherever we are on this spiritual journey, whether we feel like we see God when we read the Bible and pray, or whether we feel like he's been distant, we don't know, asking God, God, help me to see you. Help me to see the unseen. God, you working in a myriad of ways. Let's spend a moment in prayer before we respond with a song.
If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.